Lord, and on behalf of the afternoon sabbatical committee, I'd like to welcome you to our program today. Uh, before I introduce our program, I have a few announcements to make, and uh, the first would be on March 10th, actors and actresses, along with directors Doug, Dr. Doug Caskey, pardon me, and Dr. Deborah Brubaker, will come to our stage to give us a peek behind the making of the spring opera, the Gilbert and Sullivan musical, The Gondoliers. Next, as you came in today, you should have received one of these uh, pamphlets or uh, handouts. And if you didn't, there's uh, more on the table outside the door when you leave. Uh, first, uh, the April 14th Egyptian International Luncheon to be held at the College Church Fellowship Hall, and the May 6th Spring Bus Trip to Holland, Michigan Tulip Festival. And after today, spring is coming, so that will be exciting. <laughs> The bus trip is presently half full, so if you wish to join us, please um, turn in your registration soon because um, I'm sure that will fill up. Today we're pleased to have Dr. Steve Nolt present our program. Dr. Nolt has been teaching at Goshen College since 1999. He received a doctorate in American history from the University of Notre Dame and a graduate theology degree from Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary after graduating from Goshen College. Since 1991, Dr. Nault has studied Amish history and culture in many settlements, visiting more than a dozen Amish communities in six states and Ontario. From 1999 to 2003, he worked with Dr. Tom Myers on a project that took them to every Amish settlement in Indiana. His many books on the Amish are listed on the screen behind me today, and some of which will be available for sale in the lobby after the program. The book Amish Grace has been published in Japanese and German language editions and Korean, pardon me, Korean and French translations are underway. Dr. Nolt is currently co-authoring another book that is an overview of Amish society in North America and publication is expected in late 2010. Last fall, Dr. Nolt and his family led the Goshen College SST program in China. He and his wife, Rachel, are the parents of two daughters, Lydia, eight and Esther six. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Nolt to our stage. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon and to uh, introduce you a bit to some of our neighbors in this part of Indiana. This afternoon, I don't intend to go through a complete catalog of um, Amish practices and beliefs and explanation for everything that Amish people do or do not do, although I know that's of interest to many of you. But the planning committee um, was well aware that there are folks in the audience here who are new to our community, who don't know much about the Amish, and there'll be other folks here, uh, are here, who uh, maybe grew up in an Amish home. So a lot of uh, different background and experience that you all have. Uh, with our Amish neighbors. And so what I'd like to do today is to introduce you uh, a bit to uh, the Amish community here in northern Indiana and then uh, also speak a bit about three particular changes, developments in recent decades that mark Amish life here in northern Indiana in very particular ways, in some cases in ways that make it uh, quite distinct and different from Amish life in other parts of North America. Each year, millions of tourists come here to northern Indiana for a few days or maybe even just a few hours uh, of uh, time in what local tourist bureaus bill as Amish country. 
whether in the Napanee Amish Acres complex or the sprawling Shipshawana flea market grounds 25 miles to the northeast. Many of these visitors uh, don't encounter Old Order Amish folks directly, but they're sure to see some of the area's 23,500 Amish people who share the rural roads and occasionally staff uh, village retail shops and, and restaurants. Those of us who live here and who share this part of the Midwest with our Amish neighbors also encounter them as customers and clients, as colleagues and patients. We cross paths at the Goshen Farmers Market and at Walmart, and in some school districts at parent-teacher conferences or elementary school open houses. And our Amish neighbors experience this region's dramatic economic swings with the rest of us. Certainly the Amish are a distinct people shaped by particular beliefs and long-standing traditions and religious commitments, but Amish life is not timeless or static. Amish society is dynamic in its own right, and it's been responsive to developments in, the local, in, in local and regional contexts. Amish people have negotiated their way through the modern world. And this afternoon, as I said, I would like briefly to introduce the local Amish community and several of the major changes and challenges that have marked their recent decades here. And in conclusion, I hope to come back to saying something more about uh, the more durable aspects of Amish conviction and tradition. Well, uh, who are the Amish here in northern Indiana? Maybe we'll use a few uh, visual um, examples here. These are from the, the uh, photograph collection housed in the Mennonite Historical Library. Most of these pictures were taken by uh, Dottie Kaufman. Um, Amish people are known as uh, folks who are committed to a particular and traditional way of life, perhaps represented here by the distinctive dress of this woman and uh, the quilting that she's doing. Although, if one would look at the quilt, um, and we had quilt experts here, we would also see the way in which quilt patterns and colors have changed among the Amish, so a traditional practice that also embodies change. An Amish buggy, a very uh, distinctive form of, of transportation that set the Amish apart from uh, the rest of us who are, are driving cars. And yet, this buggy, this uh, photo taken in Napanee, also reminds us of the way in which uh, our Amish neighbors are part of our local civic community because the Amish buggy has a license plate. Uh, Indiana is the only state that allows local municipalities to license Amish buggies. You won't find buggies with license plates any other part of the country. And even here in Indiana, not every county requires the Amish to have uh, Amish buggies to be licensed. So if you go to Napanee, um, where there are Amish people living in four contiguous counties, some of the buggies have license plates and some of them don't. They're all legal, it just depends where they're, where they're coming from. Um, uh, in addition to Amish buggies, one uh, is uh, quite apt to see uh, Amish folks uh, loading groceries, as in the, the Walmart here, southeast of Goshen, uh, into a, a, a van, a truck, um, uh, that is used by, uh, that uh, has been hired as a, a driver to uh, take groceries. And uh, many of the, the items that are, are purchased here might be typical of the things that uh, you or I would purchase. Uh, and one would see Amish uh, customers and families uh, at a place like uh, McDonald's. Northern Indiana is actually home to two different Amish communities. Uh, and on this map, you see the, the, all the gray areas in Indiana indicate places where there are Amish communities. 
In northern Indiana, there are actually two um, settlements, we call them. Goshen lies between them. The first, known as the Elkhart-LaGrange Settlement, which runs from east of, of Goshen into LaGrange County in northern Noble County. And the other is the Napanese Settlement, which uh, is located in the area where uh, the four counties of Elkhart, Marshall, Kosciuszko, and St. Joseph come together. Together, the Amish who live in these settlements account for 60% of all the Amish in Indiana. And the Elkhart-LaGrange settlement by itself is the third largest Amish population in the United States. Amish people have been living here in this part of Indiana since 1841, when the first four households arrived from southwestern Pennsylvania. And today, there are nearly 5,000 Amish families who uh, live here. Um, Again, as I said, about uh, 23,500 Amish people who are uh, living in, in northern Indiana today. It's a very young population. About 60% of the population are age 18 and younger. Um, but that the, the, the size of the population and the um, young profile of the population brings us to the first of three uh, major changes or developments that I'd like to uh, speak to today, and that is population growth. Uh, the Amish population is growing. It is not dying out. Um, in, in this slide, we have uh, show numbers of uh, Amish church districts in each of these two northern Indiana settlements. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Amish church districts, uh, Amish churches don't meet for worship in separate church buildings. They meet for Sunday morning worship in the homes of members, and their meetings rotate from home to home. To better facilitate that rotation, church districts, congregations, districts are laid out geographically with all the people living in a particular area being part of the same congregation or uh, a church district would be similar language that uh, other Christian groups might use the term parish or congregation. And when membership in a district grows too large to comfortably meet in a home, the district divides. Uh, and so the growth in number of church districts is directly related to the growth in population and membership of the church. There are no Amish uh, megachurches. All Amish churches are roughly the same size. In this area, there are about 30 households on average that are part of uh, a single church district. Um, and this, the, 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 the division and, and spread geographically uh, of Amish church districts rather than having Amish churches uh, concentrated or, or having individuals drive from one part of the county to another to an Amish church district they might find um, uh, more acceptable or accommodating to their views uh, adds to the social stability and equality across the settlement. There's no real choice in what church district um, you're, in what, what church you uh, attend, it's the church in which you live. Um, well, what accounts for this uh, population growth? Uh, the most obvious, of course, is the presence of large families. Uh, completed families here in northern Indiana have just over six children on average. Family size has declined just a bit in the last 30 years, but not dramatically, and it remains much larger than that of non-Amish households here and, and through the rest of the country on average. But it's not just large families that account for Amish population growth. The Amish, as an Anabaptist Christian group, believe in and, and practice adult baptism. That is, children born to Amish parents are not automatically members of the Amish church. They need to choose to be baptized and join the church, usually around uh, the ages of uh, 17 to 21. And there's always the possibility that children will um, choose not to join their parents' church, to um, reject that opportunity. 
And yet the percentage of children who join the Amish church, the percentage of children born to Amish parents who join the Amish church has been increasing in recent decades. Of children born in the 1930s, less than 80% joined the Amish church. Today, the percentage is about 95%. So it's not just large families, it's also increasing retention rates, which is why the rate of growth is increasing even as family size has shrunk just a bit. Many people are curious, why, why is the uh, retention rate, sociologists would say, uh, gone up? Uh, why are more children as a percentage joining the Amish church today? There's no one single answer. I would suggest uh, four interrelated answers over the last 25 to 30 years. And uh, some of these are related to, to the other uh, topics I want to touch on today. Uh, one is occupational change. Uh, it's uh, simply easier to be Amish today than in the time when everyone had to be a farmer in order to be a good Amish person. There are more economic options than, um, than in the past. Second is the rise of Amish schools and Amish private schools as a means of teaching Amish values and socializing Amish children uh, into an Amish way of life. Third would be the presence of thoughtful and flexible church leaders in this area, in uh, this part of Indiana. Um, I'll say a bit more about that also uh, in a moment. And the, the fourth uh, related factor, I suppose, would be the uh, ending of military conscription in the early 1970s, and that's sort of a, a different issue, but also uh, something that played into uh, rates of, of uh, defection or, uh, or, or joining the church in past uh, decades. One other thing to note here, um, when, when you see the numbers of church districts in this region, 133 east of Goshen and 34 in the Napanee area, is just to note that um, each church district has its own leaders and to a certain degree makes its own decisions about many matters of daily conduct. Certainly these decisions are made with an eye to the opinions and convictions of neighboring Amish church districts. But in a real sense, each Amish church district is also uh, somewhat independent in making uh, its own, its own uh, decisions. And for that reason, these two northern Indiana settlements are remarkably diverse, especially compared with other Amish communities. The range of technology that's used, for example, from self-generated electricity in some church districts to the use of ice boxes and wood stoves in some other church district matches similar ranges of practice in other areas of life. Uh, some Amish church districts most actually now allow uh, bicycles, others do not. Um, many permit uh, taking a local newspaper, uh, others do not. Some families regularly spend evenings at Walmart filling shopping carts with consumer goods and other households make principled choices to not shop in such places. A few old order districts in northern Indiana hold bi-weekly Sunday school to promote Bible study, but the vast majority do not. Some Amish here spend Saturday afternoons water skiing on nearby lakes and others limit socializing to work frolics, volleyball games, and quiet afternoon visiting. No other Amish settlement in America um, has this same dynamic. Elsewhere, settlements either impose fairly uniform standards of behavior across all districts or unable to agree on differences have split into competing affiliations that do not affiliate, uh, that are not in fellowship with one another. The Amish in northern Indiana are distinctive in their moderating approach to church life, allowing differences among districts, but not, at least thus far, allowing those differences to sever relationships among the districts. All this diversity makes Amish life in northern Indiana unusually hard to generalize, 
um, but uncommonly rich to observe. The, um, the, the, the population growth, just to go back to uh, population growth uh, in this area, uh, is such that uh, Amish population in this area, assuming the retention rates of 95%, uh, is on track to double every 19 years. And so Amish population growth itself has been part of uh, the second major uh, shift that I would like, uh, development I'd like to talk about, and that is uh, occupational change in, in recent years. The regional context in which old order communities uh, exist is significant in shaping their identities. The Amish have never been economically isolated or self-sufficient. 19th century Amish families seem to have practiced farming in a way that was very similar to their neighbors. In the early 20th century, involvement in commercial mint farming, for example, uh, many, as, as many of their neighbors did. As population growth put pressure on land prices and availability in the late 1800s and early 1900s, many Amish families from this area moved to other parts of the West. For example, uh, in the 1890s and early 1900s, families from Napanee moved to Hubbard, Oregon, Milo, North Dakota, Carrington, North Dakota, White Cloud, Michigan, Gibson, Mississippi, Newton County, Indiana, and if we expanded the years or included the Elkhart-LaGrange settlement, we have a very long list of places to which Amish families from this area moved to establish new farming communities. That strategy changed during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression as a great many of these new settlements collapsed. They were often on marginal land uh, to begin with. Um, and as families began moving back to northern Indiana in the 1930s, um, they carried a message that launching new farming enterprises was risky and that remaining in traditional communities, even if that meant taking up non-farming jobs, was the sure path to stability. And so during the 1930s, younger Amish men in northern Indiana began, in small numbers at first, but began working in local factories. A number of factors then continued to make uh, farming less viable. As the 20th century wore on, um, pressures of population growth, Amish and non-Amish, continued to squeeze the available acres that were available for farming. Farmland prices went up. Uh, with the loss of the commercial mint market, an important source of, of um, cash evaporated for farmers in this area. Uh, leaving them with uh, dairying um, or crop farming that was often limited on the 80-acre uh, farms of this area. After 1972, when new state dairy regulations mandated milk cooling in bulk milk tanks that required home-generated or utility-provided electricity, some churches decided not to adopt bulk tanks, opting instead to continue water-cooled milk cans even though that meant they had to ship their milk at grade B for a lower price. This choice also weakened farm profits. Uh, and the northern Indiana Amish exodus from farming only picked up speed. In the late 1970s, several Amish entrepreneurs joined other businessmen in sponsoring a local cheese-making establishment, Stoich Kesa House, to provide an outlet for grade B milk. And although that enterprise itself has been very successful, it didn't significantly boost the number of Amish farmers. In fact, by the late 1980s, farming had become a minority pursuit, uh, and factory work was the norm. Uh, and we have some numbers here that come from Amish church directories. Uh, this is just the Elkhart-LaGrange settlement. Was, numbers were too small if I tried to include Napanee as well. Uh, but you see the, the different categories, and um, the 19... 
The 1980s uh, really was the, the, the tipping point from farming going from a majority to a minority uh, occupation and factory work uh, becoming the norm. Um, I don't know if you can uh, read at the bottom, perhaps it's too small. The category other includes uh, uh, people who are working in sawmills, feed mills, as teachers, retail clerks, tax preparers, auctioneers, day laborers, a variety of other, uh, other occupations, um, including one that shows up in the 2007 Amish directory. Um, this is a, probably one of the more unusual Amish jobs, but someone lists her occupation as Mary Kay consultant. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that I put that in the other category. Um, when, when Amish men in this area looked for jobs outside of the agricultural sector, it's no surprise that they turned to factory work. Uh, as you all know, particularly those of you who have lived in this area all your life, industrial manufacturing is a remarkably large part of this region's economy, accounting for just more than 50% of all civilian jobs uh, as of uh, a year ago at least. Um, and uh, the Amish occupational profile, if you take out professional pursuits, actually mirrors the, um, the, the, the general occupational uh, profile for this uh, county. Um, factory work was also appealing to many Amish men because uh, factories in this area are, uh, with a few exceptions, not unionized, and Amish church rules uh, forbid union membership. So for example, if one compares the uh, occupational choices of the Amish in this area with the Amish uh, around Kokomo, Indiana. There are also industrial employment opportunities around Kokomo, but Amish men around Kokomo don't work in factories because the factories there are unionized and the church uh, forbids them to work in that, uh, in that environment. Um, and I, I should also mention that the Amish occupational profile here is, is different from just about everywhere else in the United States, the Amish experience here. Um, there's something of a parallel in Jaga County, Ohio, but in most other places, Amish owned small businesses lodged at home uh, and employing usually the immediate family members or neighbors uh, is the, the choice, uh, the, the, the alternative to farming choice. It's very unusual to have so many Amish uh, household heads working in factories. And there are also a few uh, single Amish women who work in factories in this uh, region as well. These numbers also just say for, for clarity, these uh, refer just to household heads in this community. If one looked at older, uh, usually male, teen, uh, teenage um, young men who are not married, say young men ages 18 to 20 who aren't married, um, the percentage in factory work would be uh, even higher, that the church directory lists only occupations only for a head of household. And I also don't include here uh, as farmers, people who have a, a sideline farm business. There are uh, many Amish families who live on a farm. Um, the um, uh, head of household works in a factory or has a small business, and they might do some farming on Saturdays or in the evenings. I'm not including them as farmers. Only full-time farmers uh, under age 65 are included here. There was an article in the newspaper, I think, back in December uh, here that said that about 2% of the Amish were farming. It's not, the number isn't that low. It, it certainly is, is uh, declining, both in raw numbers and in percentage, but um, it's not, not quite at uh, 2% yet. Um, and now, uh, here we are in early 2009 in uh, an economic crisis for this community, uh, including the Amish. Being tied to industry is currently having a devastating impact on many people. Uh, living in this region, including the Amish. 
I remember in, in 2000, I asked an Amish bishop in the Napanee area how he would characterize the Napanee Amish settlement if someone unfamiliar with it would ask him to do so. And his immediate response was, it's a place where you can get a job. Uh, that's not necessarily the case uh, anymore. With shorter hours or layoffs, uh, situations that were uh, not completely unprecedented, but at least unprecedented in recent memory and uh, unprecedented in in the Amish experience in this area of uh, during the decades in which they've been so tied in to local industry. It's not clear what the outcome of this uh, current economic uh, picture is going to be for the Amish community. It may presage a turn towards small businesses and some Amish leaders are, are even hopeful that maybe more Amish men will start small businesses and not work in factories. Uh, they've, uh, some Amish folks have, have long viewed factory work as uh, problematic for a number of reasons. Um, but we don't yet know if that, if that will happen. Uh, right now, many Amish small businesses are also suffering to the degree that many small businesses, uh, small manufacturing firms were also directly or indirectly tied into the larger industrial economy of this area and are, are, are also uh, hurting for uh, orders. Certainly, there has been uh, a reliance in this community on mutual aid, on support from the family and the church to make financial ends meet, to make payments. There may, as the year goes on, be secondary repercussions um, for covering medical bills. Uh, most Amish families in this area do not carry commercial insurance, and the few who did, did so through their employment, which has now in some cases been cut. Instead, uh, churches uh, help to cover medical bills and receive some modest reduction in the price in exchange for cash payment within 30 days. But that is often involved raising large sums of money um, on fairly short notice, and some of that money is now going um, to help other family members or other church members cover their day-to-day uh, -day expenses or, or mortgages. Um, so again, what this actually means for the future, uh, the Amish in this area, I think we won't we won't know for some time. There's also been something new in the form of Amish uh, men laid off from work accepting unemployment benefits. Um, accepting state aid of any kind has been something that Amish people in the United States have typically avoided, but in some cases it's happening now. Now there is a bit of a precedent for this in this area, uh, precedent for accepting state aid or um, adjusting at least temporarily uh, expectations within the Amish church. During the Depression, some younger Amish men in this area, uh, hard-pressed for work, accepted jobs as drivers of delivery trucks, and churches conceded driver's licenses to men who otherwise had no work, provided they drove only when they were on the job and were working for a non-Amish employer. And we also have some documents in the archives here on campus that demonstrate that a handful of uh, Amish men in the Napanee area also took jobs through the Works Progress Administration of the federal government at that time. But when times changed, uh, there was a shift back away, a shift away and, and back to traditional understandings of, of not accepting government aid and, and not allowing uh, driver's licenses. Um, Beyond the immediate crisis of employment and income, though, what is the impact of, of uh, industry on Amish life here? Um, despite their heavy involvement in industry, northern Indiana Amish men and women are far from fond of this work. Uh, ask 
Amish folks who work in factories, if they enjoy it, <clears throat> they'll quickly list all the negative aspects, including the intense pressure of assembly line performances. Um, uh, had, had Amish men uh, tell me the line just keeps moving. It keeps moving whether your piece fits or not. It's very frustrating. Um, they, they cite the, the, the general stress of, of the work environment uh, and uh, perhaps some habits of their coworkers that they uh, don't appreciate. And yet these criticisms are part of a larger picture that belies a simplistic caricature. A clear sense of separation still exists and persists even in the midst of such close elbow rubbing with the dominant economy. Amish men choose to uh, hire on with firms that employ large numbers of their fellow church members, in effect creating ethnic subcultures at work. Amish workers report that they spend their break time and lunch hour with fellow Amish church members talking about Amish life in Pennsylvania Dutch and interacting in a meaningful way in, in only limited ways with their non-Amish co-workers. Indeed, it may be the case that Amish factory employees work in more of an ethnic cocoon than do those who operate home-based businesses, which are seemingly more separate, but which require frequent and ongoing English language interaction with non-Amish customers, suppliers, and shippers. Now, this does not mean that the impact of industrial work is negligible. Contours of Amish life in northern Indiana have been shaped by this unusual reliance on uh, factory labor. For example, the Amish ritual calendar uh, has been altered here in northern Indiana. Traditionally, weddings took place on Tuesdays or Thursdays in the fall. That's no longer the case. Now it's more likely, uh, rather than following that uh, more rural rhythm of time, that weddings happen any time of the year and often on Saturdays when the, most of the male guests have the day off. Even the annual ministers' meetings for these settlements are held on Saturdays because so many bishops, ministers, and deacons are factory workers. The prevalence of industrial work also has implications for the practice of uh, mutual aid. Since only Amish people who are self-employed uh, have the uh, possibility of exemption from Social Security, Amish people who work for non-Amish employers must um, pay into Social Security. Uh, and so a sizable portion of this community is and has for uh, some time now been linked to this federal system of old age, old age pensions. The church certainly discourages those who pay into the system for collecting benefit, from collecting benefits when they reach age eligibility, but anecdotal evidence suggests that some do cash in, at least enough to concern Amish leaders in some other states, interestingly enough, who fear that northern Indiana Amish practices may jeopardize old order exemption in other parts of the country that was based on the claim that no Amish ever want a part of this system. In addition, steady wage labor here in northern Indiana, uh, in, in the past at least, when wages were uh, better and hours included regular overtime, introduced significant cash flow into family pockets. Factory jobs provided a steady paycheck and required no investment other than a lunchbox, as someone told me. Um, discretionary uh, disposable income paid for decorative landscaping, for cement driveways, for basketball hoops, for things that one doesn't see in other uh, Amish communities in other parts of the country, even in similarly wealthy um, Amish communities where wealth might be measured more in terms of land or investment in a small business. The disposable income uh, here was what was, uh, what was something that was distinctive and, and which you see in a number of, number of ways. 
Uh, it's reflected even in the spatial structure of the settlement, suburban-style tract housing, uh, as in the picture here, um, lived in by Amish factory worker families, two-story attached garage homes on a half-acre lot, perhaps with a small barn for a horse, a small horse pasture, and now commonplace. Uh, many of these homes uh, have a small vegetable garden, but some don't have that. Um, these might even be, we might even consider these uh, Amish suburbs. Amish suburban life keeps ethnic life close. Uh, interaction with church members in some ways is closer now than ever if you live in an Amish suburb, but it also symbolizes the social and family changes that factory work uh, has brought here. And there are also uh, new pressures on family life. Since fathers are away from home, children may grow up without a regular set of chores. Uh, to date, the size of families headed by factory workers has not uh, gone any lower uh, in, in, in uh, number of, of average number of children than those of families who, who's, um, um, who are living on a farm or who live uh, uh, with a small business. Uh, so the task of occupying six to seven children who compose the typical factory worker's family falls exclusively now more than ever on the wife and mother, and observers note changes in the nature of women's work in this area as wives shift more of their energies to child care, child rearing, and discipline, and may not have as much time to spend on what had been traditional feminine roles in, in Amish society. Now, Industrial employment has brought change to Amish country, but it doesn't mean the end of Amish society. And I, I want to stress that point to my colleague, Tom Myers, here at Goshen. Uh, it's also a point that he often stresses. Uh, only if we assume that the Amish are a timeless group um, would we fear that change is, um, means the death of Amish society. Change does not equal the end of Amish society. It does mean change, uh, important changes, but uh, it's, these sorts of changes are not the end of Amish society. The rates of children joining the church among factory workers are no lower than uh, the settlement average. In fact, they're, they're much, uh, they, uh, other factors are much more important, such as whether a child attended an Amish school or a public school is uh, much more important than whether uh, the child grew up in the home of a factory worker versus a, uh, a farmer. Um, and in some ways, factory work may even uh, buffer the influence of the wider world, or at least had uh, up until now in this area. The fact that industrial work seemed so alien to its Amish participants in some ways made it easier for employees to separate themselves from their work. Amish factory workers did not take on the identity of a factory worker. Factory work was a means to an end, a way of making a living, nothing more than that. Um, the, the factory provided a, a place that was alien turf in a sense, in which one could use equipment provided by a non-Amish employer, um, but that, in a that then you, you left that equipment there. It was, in some ways, not as problematic for uh, Amish traditions as the challenge posed by uh, at-home small businesses, in which changes in technology and the desire of entrepreneurs to gain a competitive edge hinged on the need to introduce productive innovation or cell phone technology right into the home environment. The very separation of factory work from the home in one sense actually held change at bay, more so than in church districts where there were more small home-based businesses. So although fathers work away from, working away from home um, may be problematic, and I think in some ways uh, Amish people would say it is, 
uh, removing work from the home also shielded the home from certain pressures that were uh, present or are present in um, Amish families in which there's a home-based business. Third uh, significant change or development, population growth, occupational change, the rise of Amish schools. And this may not seem as closely related to the other two, but uh, in a way it is, particularly to, to uh, occupational uh, change in, a, in an interesting sort of way. Um, this, this third development, which continues today, um, is also distinctive in this area, uh, sorry, in this region in northern Indiana because the rise of Amish schools here happened later and more slowly than in many other parts of the country. In fact, there still are significant numbers of Amish children, significant percentage of Amish children in this area who attend public schools. If uh, you pick up a, a typical um, coffee table book about the Amish that is uh, perhaps based on the Amish experience in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you will read that Amish children all attend Amish schools. None of them go to public school. And that is true in Lancaster. It's true in, in most Amish settlements. It's very unusual, in fact, for uh, Amish families to send their children to public schools, except here uh, in northern Indiana. It's not all that unusual. There'll be a couple other, other places that we might uh, mention, but it's, it's fairly unusual. Um, to have as many Amish children in public schools as we have here in northern Indiana. There were some conflicts with public school officials and Amish parents in this area in the 1920s. There are early newspaper accounts in which Amish fathers spent time in jail uh, here in Goshen for uh, resisting sending their children uh, to high school. Those conflicts were resolved in the 20s. We don't know enough about that resolution, unfortunately, but somehow they were resolved. And Amish parents and school administrators for much of the 20th century were on fairly uh, good terms with one another, unlike some other parts of the country or even some other parts of the state. Uh, in Allen County, Indiana, around Fort Wayne, there was a lot of tension between Amish, school, uh, Amish parents and public school uh, directors. So there was a, a, a slow start here. The first Amish school in Indiana opened in 1948 near Middlebury. The first Amish school in the Napanee area opened in 1951. But there weren't that many Amish schools that opened very quickly in the years that followed. Until after 1967, two things happened in 1967. Uh, the Westview School District consolidated in LaGrange County, and there were a whole lot of rural, small rural schools that were closed as a part of that. And also in 1967, the Allen County um, conflict between uh, Amish and public school leaders was resolved at the state level in Indianapolis with the release of a, an agreement uh, through the state of Indiana that in some ways uh, legitimated, well, that legitimated and then in some ways encouraged the opening of Amish private schools as an alternative to public schools. Um, a majority of uh, Amish youngsters continued to enroll in the public system uh, in, through the 1970s. Uh, many Amish families that lived in small towns with modest-sized elementary schools felt it was fine for their children to continue walking or bicycling to school. Some of you remember the uh, Honeyville Public School in LaGrange County. There was a public school that had an almost entirely Amish uh, enrollment because of its location and how things were uh, districted, and that uh, school existed until 2001 as a public school with, with uh, an Amish, uh, basically an Amish student body. Uh, there were non-Amish public school teachers who followed a public school curriculum, but it was a very different sort of, sort of school. 
The number of private schools in both settlements expanded notably in the 1990s and early, um, early years of this century. And Amish observers explain that this had uh, much to do with growing concerns about public school classroom access to the internet and use of computers and an increasingly divergent lifestyle of non-Amish classmates. In, in particular for those families who lived in the Honeyville area, the closing of the Honeyville school in public school in 2001 also led to the establishment of first two and now three Amish private schools that are related to, um, to the closing of, of the Honeyville school. Um, and so in the, uh, soon after the, the closing of, of, of the Honeyville school in, in uh, the Elkhart-LaGrange settlement, um, the percentage of children in Amish schools moved to 60% from about half to about 60%. In the Napanee settlement, about the same time, it went from about half to about 80%. And these percentages, uh, I don't have the most recent figures yet calculated from last school year, but these percentages continue to go up just a bit. I would expect that the, in the Elkhart-LaGrange settlement now, uh, it's, 60, it's probably more than 65, between 65 and 70% of children, Amish children now in private schools. Um, and in Napanee, the percentage has maybe gone up just a bit. Now, one result of continued participation in public schools through the years in this area <clears throat> was that many Amish children grew up with non-Amish school friends who continued, in many cases, to be neighborly acquaintances uh, well after the Amish students had withdrawn from the public school system after eighth grade. School contacts helped to cement local ties further coupling old order um, families and the non-Amish community. In fact, public school attendance was probably uh, a more significant link to the outside, uh, to, to, to uh, outside civic community than was industrial employment of Amish men. At the same time, um, we should note that the, the, the increase in the percentage of children attending private schools has happened simultaneously with the rise in Amish employment in, uh, in, in industry. Uh, and so we, we have this interesting development in which it's now likely, uh, that it, it would now be typically the case that an Amish child will, will uh, grow up attending an Amish school with an entirely Amish peer group as a child and then spend their adult life um, working, if, if they're a, a man, working in a non-Amish environment with non-Amish co-workers, either in a factory or, or uh, in the small business world. Their grandparents were more apt to go to a public school and have a non-Amish peer group as children and then spend their adult life with a mostly Amish adult community and cohort and set of interactions. So there's been um, an, the, the, there's been an opening of the Amish economic world and a closing of, I'm sorry, an, yeah, an opening of the Amish economic world and a, a closing, in a sense, of the Amish educational world that have happened at the same time. And this, this opening and closing are simultaneous uh, developments so that there continue to be significant relationships and interactions between Amish and non-Amish folks in this area, but they're different now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. In some cases, they're the reverse. And uh, Amish families uh, note this even as they uh, talk about the changes in generations and uh, the kinds of non-Amish friends and contacts that the oldest generation had and where they developed those friends and relationships versus uh, Amish children today.
Well, population growth and occupational change, uh, the rise of, of Amish schools, and the related social implications of all three of these things together uh, place a certain amount of stress on Amish society, especially since many of these new developments occur in areas of life that don't have stable or well-defined Amish traditions. Managing change in this context is not easy, and in recent years has prompted some creative responses and reinvigorated a few older strategies, all of which I think helps to explain the continued health of this and vitality of these settlements in the ways they understand themselves. <clears throat> I just, in a list here, a couple of examples, a few examples, and there would be many more um, that, that uh, one could, uh, just in the last uh, 20 years or less, in which uh, Amish leaders in this area have established some new institutions, some new links with the wider world, ways of doing things in new ways uh, that um, suggest a, a fairly creative outlook on the part of Amish leaders, lay leaders as well as ministers in this area. It doesn't stand in isolation in the larger Amish world, but it's again part of this, uh, I think, distinctive um, the distinctive character of Amish life here in northern Indiana that, that is uh, particularly um, uh, dynamic and flexible at the center. Um, revolving mortgage funds. The um, uh, Amish Mutual Mortgage Fund operates in Napanee. In 19, uh, was founded in 1990. Uh, there's a, a parallel organization for the Elkhart-LaGrange settlement known as the Tri-County Land Trust. And this is a revolving loan fund that offers loans to um, families in their respective settlements. The program works on a revolving fund with modest return for the original investors, but also charitable disbursements for Amish schools that help with construction of new Amish schools. Uh, borrowers do not need to take out life insurance policies, which was a requirement that uh, discouraged some uh, Amish families from uh, going with commercial bank loans. And uh, these uh, revolving funds are one of the reasons that, at least for a while, uh, I think some of the, the, the fallout from um, the industrial meltdown in this area will be forestalled or will be managed in a little bit of a different way for uh, Amish borrowers in this area. The Bruderhan Fund, established in 1995, is a similar revolving loan fund, but here it was to offer startup loans to Amish families who wanted to launch a home-based business. And this may be a fund that will be getting more, more requests uh, this year uh, if there is, in fact, more of an interest in Amish households starting small businesses. It's interesting that in most other Amish settlements, there was no need to have an organized fund to encourage small businesses. Small businesses in most other Amish communities just emerged naturally. Uh, but here, by the mid-90s, uh, factory work was so... Um, so common uh, that uh, there was, there was uh, seen to be a, a need to encourage this kind of, kind of work in a, in a formal way. In 1997, some Amish and non-Amish leaders in LaGrange County uh, opened the new Eden Care Center, which is located in Eden Township. It's a birthing center. Area medical doctors and uh, nurse midwives deliver babies there. An Amish contractor put up the building. Amish donations provided the project seed money. Um, the building is fully electrified and has other uh, necessary modern amenities for medical care, so the structure is not legally owned by Amish individuals. However, in key ways, New Eden remains very much of an Amish facility. 
rooms don't have televisions in them. Uh, extended families provide meals for the women who are staying there, and a small board of Amish men donate their time towards managing the property and keeping the finances uh, in order. There's uh, remarkably low overhead, and more than 400 children are born there each year. There have been a number of uh, efforts at creating mental health programs with Amish cultural needs in mind and, Amish sensitivity, and sensitivity to Amish culture, um, particularly in, in uh, this county, working with uh, Oaklawn. In 2002, a facility was opened on the Oaklawn campus called Rest Haven, um, where uh, Rest Haven can provide a hospital setting for Amish patients. Uh, where their concerns about media and dress and gender distinction and other matters are taken seriously. There are nightly hymn sings and devotions that are part of the regular schedule. Non-Amish uh, therapists, but who speak Pennsylvania Dutch, are on staff. Family members enjoy expanded visiting privileges. Uh, and in 2005, a group of, of uh, area Amish families who had endorsed the Rest Haven model began another facility across the road off Oaklawn property called Pleasant Haven, which is a long-term residential facility for those um, recovering from or in the process of, of um, uh, managed mental health care. I mentioned earlier that a number of these projects are the result, uh, I believe, of uh, some particularly uh, creative uh, and flexible Amish church leaders in this community. And one of the interesting things uh, that we've looked at in the last decade is how do Amish church leaders in certain ways compared with Amish church leaders of the past? <clears throat> it turns out that bishops, ministers, and deacons in the Elkhart-LaGrange settlement are being chosen and uh, ordained at younger ages. The average age at ordination is now 40. Uh, I'm sorry, is now 32, and uh, a couple decades ago it was 40. This tendency to nominate uh, younger men for leadership posts suggests, I think, that members are entrusting their church to the care of those most familiar with contemporary economic or technological realities. Um, a, a majority of Amish ministers under age 40 uh, are factory employees. Significantly, though, um, these new leaders share another characteristic that was less common than ministers of uh, a generation or two ago. An increasing percentage of today's Amish ministers are the sons or grandsons of ministers. Um, and I won't give you all the, all the statistics for that, but it's, it's becoming a, a, more common, um, a more common characteristic. So it seems that as community leaders entrust leadership into younger hands who toil in less traditional workplaces, they also nominate those who come from families with proven experience in leadership. And in doing so, they may be banking on these ministers having the sort of experience that will better enable them to negotiate change and adapt to an, uh, an evolving environment while at the same time being grounded in Amish tradition. That tradition was no more on display, tragically and terrifyingly so, than in the aftermath of a horrendous schoolhouse shooting in October 2006 in Pennsylvania. And as I'm sure you uh, recall, uh, in that case, a non-Amish neighbor entered a one-room Amish school near the crossroads of uh, nickel mines, ordering the boys and adults out of the building, barricading himself inside with the girls, and then proceeding uh, to shoot them and kill himself. Five of the girls died and five were wounded. 
Within an hour, these events became news literally around the world, not only as a story of shock and pain, but also of bewilderment, as many observers struggled to understand the Amish response. Through the years, I've gotten a number of uh, inquiries from the media who wonder uh, why it is that an Amish person has been cited in a McDonald's. Is that actually true? Uh, is it true that Amish people are allowed to wear roller skates? A lot of questions about change in Amish society. Um, in the aftermath of the school shooting, I was getting very different kinds of questions, questions about um, the constancy of Amish tradition, not about change, but about things uh, that uh, had not changed very much in Amish life, things that uh, had always been very important to the Amish, but had largely escaped the attention or interest uh, of, of uh, a wider, wider media. How to make sense of the fact that within, um, that, that, that the Amish grief was intense, but that they hadn't converted their grief into shock or calls for retribution. True, the killer in this sense was dead, but the Amish didn't engage in the most common form of revenge that we see in polite middle-class society, attacking his character or degrading his memory. While non-Amish neighbors, in some cases in letters to the editor, said they hoped he was enjoying burning in hell, the Amish said they were trusting that he had met a merciful God. Nor did they imply that his apparent mental illness was a moral failing, again, as did many of the non-Amish neighbors. Instead, they spoke of him as a troubled man, a human being whose survivors needed love and compassion. And in fact, within a few hours of the shooting, members of the local Amish community had visited um, the gunman's widow, his parents, and his parents-in-law, extending sympathy and assuring the family that the Amish would not scapegoat them for what he had done. And six days later, when most non-Amish neighbors stayed away from his burial, local Amish people, including Amish parents who had buried their own daughters the day before, comprised half of the mourners who came to the graveside. A funeral director who had participated in thousands of funerals said he hadn't seen anything like it. When I asked why and how the Amish responded as they did, several things quickly became clear. There had been no meeting to decide on how to respond. One Amish grandmother laughed when asked if there had been a meeting to decide uh, how to respond. No, she said forgiveness was a decided issue. At the same time, the grandmother and others made clear that forgiveness is hard work emotionally, that deciding to forgive and expressing that desire with words and actions are only the first step on the longer emotional process of forgiveness. And as uh, some of you know, staff and families who uh, participate in the Ryan's Place program here in Goshen uh, visited, not immediately, but given appropriate time, uh, visited the families of um, the slain and wounded girls in Lancaster. Uh, and that's a, a local Goshen connection here uh, also, um, and could be a, would be another example of a, a very fruitful um, local um, encounter uh, and program between Amish and non-Amish folks in our area. Uh, and um, as part of their uh, visits in Lancaster, uh, they found that um, many of those close to the tragedy were making use of professional counselors and more than a year later continued in, in different ways to work with their grief. Most used biblical, not clinical language to explain their journey. Jesus, they said, had promised that even small offenses need to be forgiven 70 times 7, which suggested to them that forgiveness takes a long time and is not, uh, not a simple thing. 
to a world that puzzled over their reaction. The Amish pointed to Jesus' parables of forgiveness, to his examples of forgiving those who crucified him, and especially to the Lord's Prayer with its key line, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This phrase rings loudly in Amish ears because the Lord's Prayer is central to their spirituality. It's not uncommon for Amish people to pray the Lord's Prayer several times a day in the Lancaster settlement, often as many as eight times a day. Forgiveness is also tied into Amish life in quite ordinary ways, and I use this as an example of a persistent tradition and the way in which daily practices reflect uh, important uh, cultural values. To the degree that forgiveness involves giving up, in this case giving up grudges, giving up the right to, the re right to revenge, it fits with a, a wider pattern of everyday Amish living that involves giving up. In many ways, giving up is the essence of Amish life, giving oneself up to God, giving up, the, giving up individual choice to the wishes of the church, from how one dresses to how one travels, the kind of employment one can hold. Amish life is shaped by routines of self-surrender. Again, that doesn't mean that the giving up that's involved in forgiveness is easy for the Amish, but it does mean that for the Amish, forgiveness is closely connected to the rest of life. It may be hard, but it doesn't seem unnatural. In contrast, for many of us in larger society, forgiveness is not just difficult, it's downright foreign, since our culture resists the idea of giving up and celebrates the individual getting what they want. This kind of countercultural value, ingrained in the practices and habits of Amish life and passed on to a new generation, stands out amid the many real and significant changes that also mark lives of our Amish neighbors. And I'll go on and uh, show these are a couple pictures of the new school that replaced the, um, uh, the school in which the shooting took place. The, the new school was um, named New Hope Amish School. Um, this is a, a, a wood-burned plaque that uh, children at the school um, helped to make to give to the Pennsylvania State Police officers who uh, whose work with them in the aftermath of the shooting they found particularly sensitive and uh, caring, uh, and their, their names are around the, the outside. And I should also maybe mention as a, as a follow-up, um, there are other parts of this, of that story that were not uh, widely known at the time and that only developed uh, later. Um, the Amish response uh, to the shooting, I think, is, is a, an amazing story in itself, but part of the, part of the, um, the power of the story is the way in which it opened up rather than foreclosed other kinds of responses that, can, that, 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 that happen later. For example, that, that, take a, that took a great amount of, take a great amount of courage in any case, but were more thinkable, more doable uh, in light of, of the, the initial Amish response. For example, the, of the five Amish girls who were wounded, four of them made a, a rather remarkable uh, re and, and quick and, and virtually complete recovery. The fifth is in um, uh, sort of persistent uh, uh, vegetative state that will probably not um, change much for the rest of her life. The mother of uh, the man who entered the school with the gun um, helps to take care of this Amish girl who has is, who is, uh, been uh, with, with permanent brain damage on a weekly basis. Uh, and that's something that's um, as remarkable um, that she is doing as the things that the Amish did, but the way in which uh, acts of grace and goodness were able to 
uh, open up those kind of possibilities. Um, in many other situations, that would have been m much harder uh, to, to, to uh, imagine because the initial responses would have been different. So it's not that the Amish in this case uh, were the only graceful people, uh, but their initial graceful response, I think, uh, allowed um, and encouraged uh, graceful reactions from uh, other non-Amish people who were, who were also tragically tied up uh, in this. When I uh, consider my own interactions with Amish people, and as uh, Laurie Lord said at the beginning, um, it's, it's been a um, number of years now that I've been visiting with and talking with uh, Amish people uh, in a number of different places. And I think about what that has uh, done for me or given to me through the years, getting to know folks who are very human, but also carriers of a distinctive culture and set of traditions, people who um, are, are working out of uh, very significant traditions and also dealing with very important and dramatic changes in their lives. I believe that my interactions with the Amish have given me a gift, a gift of reminding me that I can't take my own experiences as a universal yardstick. Academics have big words for things like this, like solipsism uh, or essentializing the self. Uh, but it really comes down to the belief that my world, my abilities, my limitations, my fears, wants, needs, and resources are typical of everyone, and therefore I can safely make all sorts of assumptions about other people. And that temptation is especially real for a white middle class person like myself, since so much of society is structured in ways that are familiar to me. So for me, the Amish have been, among other things, a nearby reminder that there are many who inhabit my same modern world, live with many of, my same many of the same modern realities that I do, but who have responded to them in ways very different from me, and who live quite happily and productively with an alternative worldview, a worldview uh, different from mine. My assumptions about technology and entertainment, higher education and faith, have all been tempered to some degree by my association with the Amish. The Amish aren't the only people who could have provided me with these insights. Other relationships may have offered the same perspective, but in this case, my Amish contacts through the years have served me very well. And I wish for all of us that we may find these communities where we can serve and be served, where we can know ourselves as we come to know others, and where we employ each other for our mutual good. I would be happy to uh, talk with any of you, uh, answer questions, hear your insights and observations. Uh, in the lobby, I'll be uh, at a table, not at the food table, but uh, at, at uh, another table closer to the door. And uh, welcome talking with you after the program. Thank you very much.